Hello, and welcome to In the Dirt from the Gravel Ride Podcast. I'm your host, Craig Dalton, and I'm going to be joined in two seconds by my co-host, Randall Jacobs. Randall, how you doing, bud? I'm doing well. How are you, my friend? I am doing good. So we had our first disaster of an episode recording a few weeks back. <laughs> yeah, I take full responsibility. I got the settings messed up in this application that we use to record, and so all of my audio was completely unusable. So here we are having some of the same conversation, but then adding some new angles to it. So if you've been missing Randall's to blame, but we'll get this out and uh, we'll back into a normal flow. <laughs> full, full responsibility taken. Yeah, I've got some interesting stuff on my end and we've got a bunch of bikes that we wanted to cover. On my end, the listener may remember an interview I did with Ribble, the UK bike brand, a few weeks back, probably about a month back at this point. And I was super curious to try their titanium model because I hadn't been on a tie bike in a while. They didn't have their gravel specific model, the one they introduced uh, this year, but they did have the CGR, which is the cross gravel road tie bike available. So after some wrangling through customs, I got a GRX setup Ribble tie in size medium. And it's just been interesting trying to get the fit the way I want. Tell me more about that. I'm curious. So very diff different bike. As we talk about a lot on the podcast, gravel bikes have a lot of different intentions and you should purchase a bike having thought through what you want to do with it. As the name would suggest, this is probably a more kind of road versatile. I wouldn't go to say anything against the versatility of my thesis, but again, starting with an orientation around a road bike plus cross plus gravel something that UK riders and riders around the world are using for everything from commuting to long gravel rides to road endurance road rides. So okay. with that said, it's definitely a taller frame. And I'll get a few uh -huh. of my, I'd love to unpack the terminology a little bit because I say it's taller just because the top tube is taller. The seat, sorry, the seat tube is longer. So the top tube is sitting higher up. It's okay. got definitely got a, a longer wheelbase and wheelbase is something we've touched on in in the dirt in the past and and the ramifications but it's very interesting for me right now having these two bikes in my garage and swapping between one and the other and really trying to articulate and understand the sensations i'm feeling because i think if i can better articulate them and maybe with your help it might be helpful to the listener when they're thinking about the bikes they want to buy and how to understand the dimensions that you see published or if you visit geometrygeeks.bike, which is a great site um, to check out how these bikes stack up against one another. Yeah, and it's interesting. There's So I have that up right now, and we had already started uh, before the call, starting to unpack that a little bit. But before we get into kind of a more scientific-y sort of conversation, I'm curious to, to hear about more of your impressions. And maybe we start with the setup. How is the bike that you're riding, the Ribble, a setup? So Currently. 650 by 47 is the tires and wheels. So 650 wheels, some nice Mavic wheels on there. It's a GRX Grupo mechanical one by uh, rigid post. So not a dropper post. Unlike my thesis, which has the redshift suspension stem, it's got a, a swapped in and we'll talk about why uh, a rigid stem on the bike okay. and a 44 millimeter bar, which the listener might remember, I, I moved out to a 48, sorry, centimeter probably, centimeter bar. Yeah. I moved out to a 48 centimeter bar. So there's just that 
I've customized the thesis so much to my personal liking for the hardcore off-road riding that I do that this is maybe more of a traditional setup that you get out of a box and it's throwing, throwing me for a little bit of a loop. One thing in particular of interest, I'm riding SRAM on my thesis with the GRX, the hoods are quite a bit longer. And when I first did my basic measurement that I always do, which is the tip of the saddle to the center of the handlebar, things were roughly aligned, but I felt myself further reaching out. And it took me a a couple minutes to, to figure out that it's probably 20 millimeters longer on the GRX hood than on the SRAM hood. So it feels quite a bit different and quite a bit more extended. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's definitely one of the factors that I'll take into account when I'm trying to graft somebody's current position on an existing bike to a bike that I'm trying to help them fit. And so really, maybe we start, uh, would it be useful to go through what a fit process looks like and compare like the different key measurements so people can understand how to compare one bike to the other with regards to fit? Yeah, no, I think that would be great. Because I, I, I do remember going through this journey a little bit. And for me, I've got a shorter torso. So the, the top tube length or the effective top tube length is usually the thing that I key in on. And for a while mm-hmm. on kind of 56 centimeter road bikes, I was starting to see 56 centimeter effective top tubes, 57. And it was going the absolute wrong direction for me. So going mm-hmm. to the gravel bike, which tended in, in my purview to have a little bit shorter effective top tube, that was useful for me. It just helped me fit better. Yeah, that is that is a general trend. A gravel bike will be uh, proportionally, it'll it'll have a little bit more stack relative to the reach compared to say like a, a performance road bike where it tends to be lower and longer. Now, the same rider can potentially fit a bike that is either more upright and shorter or lower and longer just rotating those three points in space of where their pedals are, you know, rotating around the crank spindle and then their saddle position, their handlebar. So if you rotate those points in space forward, you end up with a position at the handlebar that is longer and lower. And so there's more that goes into, uh, so that's one thing to, to take into consideration. But when I, when I look at comparing fit and helping people understand the fit of a new bike, compared to a bike that they're on, I always start with, what is your saddle height? Because the foundation of fit, people generally start with the frame. But if you can, you start with the proportional crank length, which you've heard me rant about as the audience. So I won't go on here other than to say, I like about 22%. And so once you have that that proportion, that crank proportional to, to inseam, which is a, a proxy for a femur and, and various other measurements, if you want to get really precise, then we're looking at the stack and reach of the frame. And so the stack is the, if if you were to measure from the center of the bottom bracket in a vertical line to the center of the upper headset bearing, but only the vertical vector, then that would be your stack. And then horizontally from the center of the bottom bracket to the center of the headset bearing would be the reach. And so if we want to do an apples to apples comparison between two like bikes, say two drop bar bikes, that would give us a starting point that would help us to understand what other the stem length and the handlebar reach and the lever reach, how those come into play. So how does, I'll put a a link to the nice image that you sent over to me regarding stack and reach, because they're a little bit confusing concepts to me. I now get where you're measuring them, but I'm still processing Mm -hmm. 
the net effect. So how is stack related to standover height? Or is it? Uh, completely, it's related in the sense that it's giving you a number for the top of that headset, but the top tube can either be parallel to the ground or it can slope downward. Okay. And so a downward sloping top tube would give you more standover, even yeah. though the other parameters of the bike are identical. And the same is true of seat tubes. So people will look at bikes and it used to be that, and actually oftentimes bikes still will list either the actual seat tube length or the virtual seat tube length, which is the length of the seat tube if it extended all the way to be parallel with the upper headset bearing. Yep. And, but you can, if you have a sloping top tube, you can have it, that top tube intersect at a lower point on the seat tube, have a shorter seat tube, more seat post exposed. And the frame is essentially identical with regards to how your starting point, the range in which those three points in space, your pedals around the axis of the, the crank spindle and your saddle position, your sit bones there and your hands on the bars in relation to how those can be adjusted using you know, the components and the adjustability and the components and swappability in the components. Gotcha. And I think I said this before, but for me, I'll, the thing I immediately key in on is effective top tube. When I'm looking at a bike or someone's going to send me a bike, I always want to make sure that's within kind of my comfort zone. But yeah, that, that's only obviously one, one probably relatively minor thing that's affecting this bike. What are the other things that you key in on? So let's even take effective top tube, right? So imagine I have a, a seat tube angle of 74 on one bike and 72 on the other. So one is slacker, one is steeper, not in that order. But the you could have the saddle more forward on the rails in the slacker position or more aft on the rails in the steeper uh, with a steeper seat tube and end up with the same position, right? So the effective top tube is measuring the center of the bearing, the upper headset bearing, in a horizontal line to where it would intersect the either the seat tube or the seat post. But that measurement can change even though you're not really affecting the critical relationship, which is the relationship between the upper headset bearing and the spindle of the crank. Because those you, you can still get that more forward position even with a slacker seat tube angle when you have a slack seat tube. And I'll just give a personal example. Uh, our bike has a 73-degree C-tube angle, which is pretty neutral. It grows proportionally to people's femurs and the lower legs. And in my case, I like a forward position. I flip the lower uh, portion of the seat saddle rail clamp such that I can. It, it's the supportive structure is more forward, so I can run a really forward saddle position like I like. I don't need a steep C-tube angle to accomplish that. Now, I'd have more forward adjustability if I had a steeper uh, C-tube angle, but I don't need it. I can get into the position I need. So you see how effective top tube really is a less useful proxy for what we really want to know, which is reach. That gives us a much better sense of how one frame is going to fit relative to another. Gotcha. So looking at the yeah. comparison between the ribble and the thesis, the reach is 2.2 millimeters longer. Yeah, which is... So let's hold that in our minds for a second and go to stack. Okay because there's another factor here. So it is also about 18 millimeters greater stack. So this is the measurement again, center of the crank spindle to the top of the upper headset bearing. And if you think about what's happening, the, the head tube 
has an angled. In the case of this bike, it looks to be the same 72 degrees. And so at a higher point along that steer, that fork steer, the reach, like the further up that fork steer you go, the reach to that point is decreasing. Right, because it, yeah. that head tube is tilted back. And so in this case, we have a bike that is slightly longer, but also significantly taller. And so if I'm comparing these two, I would need to take both into account. And I would look at this and say, okay, realistically, on this, on the Ribble, if you had the same cockpit set up and you were going to have your points in space, again, center of the bottom bracket spindle, seat bones, and your hands on the hoods in identical position with the same levers, same handlebar, same stem and so on. Actually, I would have you on a 10 millimeter shorter stem to get into that same position. Interesting. So spot on analysis, Randall, because I started with a a 10 centimeter stem and went Mm -hmm. down to an eight, primarily because I had an eight laying around and I didn't have a nine, but I went to the eight. But I was also trying to adjust around that GRX hood length that I mentioned earlier, which was again, further extended. So it sounds like just doing some quick math, I made the 10 millimeter adjustment for the stack and reach and mm-hmm. another 10 millimeters to affect the, that hood reach that I was experiencing with the GRX lever. So I'm still maybe a little bit long, but in the ballpark. Yeah. And this gets to a deeper kind of fit philosophy element here that we're teasing out, which is there's this idea with some older style measurements, like effective top tube and so on, where you people will fit the rider to the bike, but really it should be fitting the bike to the rider. So those points in space should be constant for the rider, no matter what their bike they're on. Yeah. The only mitigating factor would be the use case. So if you're using a bike for one application that is it's more advantageous to be more upright or what have you, you might adjust there. But Apple's, if you're using it for the same thing, those points in space shouldn't change. And then you use your, you, you select your frame size based on your ability to get those same positions with the cockpit components you want to use. There's another factor here too. Let's say you're between sizes, right? So I'm, I, I can ride in our bikes, I can ride a large or a medium. On the large, I run a 100 mil stem. On the medium, I run a 120. I used to have two of, the, two of our bikes, so I could always loan out the other one. And I would use the medium for my more road riding because it put more weight, more mass over the front axle because the head tube angles are identical on those two bikes. So basically the frame is becoming shorter and the stem is becoming longer and it's cantilevering more of my mass, distributing more of my mass over that front axle versus the large is my go-to because it's good on the road, sufficiently planted. But then I like having a little bit less mass over the front axle for off-road riding. And the 100 mil is is just fine, particularly given that I have the dropper post, so I can get my weight back. And so it's less of an issue. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing yeah. that we've talked about before, and if you look at the geometrygeeks.bike site and compare the two bikes, the wheelbase is about 25 millimeters longer on the Ribble, yeah. which mm-hmm. definitely like coming off of Mount Tam on the road, I'm feeling like super confident and it's just, yeah, it felt great. I haven't necessarily internalized like, am, is it feeling longer when I get into technical stuff? Cause I've still been working on the fit. So I've been riding pretty mellow stuff on that bike, but I'm curious, what do you think that longer wheelbase translates to in terms of ride quality? There's a couple things going on here. And so you, you can't just change one parameter without changing the others. So in the case of these two bikes, the Rival CGR and your thesis OB1, um, 
the Ribble has a 15 millimeter longer chainstay, right? So 435 versus 420. Now that will make some difference in terms of your ability to get the front end up. So for uh, off-road riding, being able to wheelie a little bit and so on. And all else equal, it'll also bias the bike more towards straight line stability. The head tube angle is also very relevant, as is the offset, which is not listed here. I'm not able to find it on their website either. Actually, not able to find the BB drop on their website either. This is another relevant figure because it measures how much you sit into the bike below the axles at the crank spindle below the two axles. So there's some information that's missing here, but you also have a shorter stem. Granted, it's being paired with longer levers, and I don't know what the handlebar reach is. That's another component that needs to be taken into account when comparing two bikes. But all else equal, it should bias the bike towards the combination of the longer chainstays and the longer reach of the frame with the same head angle, and then the shorter stem, so you're cantilevered less over the front axle, should result in a bike that is wants, and again, we don't have the fork offset, so we, that's another factor, a bike that wants to be in a straight line more, that maybe, and even this, assuming that your three points in space are the same, graph, grafted from one to the other, a bike that maybe has less mass over the front axle. So if you're descending, say, like a, a, a canyon road, and you're taking corners hard, maybe the front end will be a little bit more vague uh, because you don't have as much mass up there to kind of plant that front end, which is great for the gravel side, but less so for road. Uh, so there's a lot of, as you can see, there's a lot of variables here, a lot of assumptions. There's a lot of variables that, that have second order effects. Yep. Uh, so it's hard to te tease out the specifics, only general trends here. I appreciate you walking me through that. It's just helping me articulate and understand more of what's going on. Next up on that bike, I am going to put a, I have a 47 centimeter handlebar that I can put on it to make it a little bit more comparable to my mm -hmm. other setup. And then, yeah, I'm looking forward to spending more time on it. Just so I, I think it's great. I think it's first off the titanium craftsmanship on that bike is awesome. It's a pleasure to ride it and look at it, but I'm really curious again, to just get it fully configured to my liking and then get out there and internalize what that net effect is on trails that I know like the back of my hand. I'd say that one thing that'd be really interesting would be try, I believe your wheels from your thesis should be compatible with that bike. Can I transfer the, can I transfer getting, that free hub over? Uh, or what would I have it's to, a, it's, sorry, would I have to use the GRX cassette on that wheel set? The GRX system is an 11 speed. So I believe it should be cross compatible. Okay. That dera that derailleur, I believe, will take a 46. I think it's an 1142 that you have on there currently. At least that's what I'm seeing on the site. But the more critical thing to wheels and tires would be, and, and tire pressure, would be making sure your points in space are identically grafted over. And then this way you can get a, you can control more of the variables to get a, a deeper sense of how geometry is coming into play versus, say, tire pressure, traction, and, and things like this. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. This is just so many variables that go into how a bicycle. Totally. This yeah. is all. This is all good. I've got another demo bike coming in the next month or so as well. I'm happy to have thought this through with you a little bit to try to get my head around it. I know we wanted to talk. We've gone a little bit longer than we thought, but I thought this conversation was really helpful for me and hopefully for the listener. We wanted to talk about a couple other bikes that have dropped in the last few months, specifically mm -hmm. the Allied Echo. 
because I think a number of the things we've been talking about are going to be irrelevant. Allied is a, an Arkansas-based manufacturer of carbon frames. They introduced the Echo, which is the bike that Colin Strickland raced to, I think, a top five finish in Unbound this year on. But the interesting thing about the Allied is they've gone with a flip chip. And we know we've, we've talked about that a little bit with respect to that eight bar Mitt V3, the German brand. But let's talk about that bike and let's talk about flip chips again. Yeah, so I'm actually bringing them, bringing that machine into the um, geometrygeeks.bike tool, which by the way, is the tool that I use when I do online fit consultations. Strongly endorse, it's uh, super useful. So what, what Allied has done is they have a flip chip that has, uh, a lot of flip chips are having more of a horizontal orientation. So it's moving the act generally forward or back and it's moving it forward or back, say several millimeters to change the offset, which in turn changes the trail and the trail you can think of as without getting into a, a detailed explanation here, we can do that at some point. Um, think of it as the propensity of the bicycle to want to track in a straight line. So the greater the trail, the more the bicycle, essentially the, the contact patch is behind the, the head tube. If you draw a, a line straight down from uh, the center of the head tube to the ground, it's the amount that the contact patch is trailing behind that line. And so the more it's trailing behind that line, you can think of it like a caster wheel, right? So yeah. if a caster wheel is directly underneath that axis, then it's, it's going it's it, it's to be hard to control the orientation of it. But if it's behind that axis, then it follows. And so the bikes work in kind of the same way. And so usually a flip chip is trying to change that to change the responsiveness of the bike. So a lower trail, less, uh, lower trail is more responsive, less stability oriented, and more trail is less responsive, more stability oriented. And there's a sweet spot where bikes tend to fall of anywhere from like 54 on the really quick side to high 60s for a touring type setup. So Allied, what they've done is they have a, a more vertical orientation, which is changing the head tube angle by, I think it's 0.5 degrees. And so it goes from a, a 73 degree head tube angle. Oh, I'm sorry, a 72.5 degree head tube angle to a 73 degree head tube angle and axle moving up and back slightly. This in turn is giving you a head tube angle that's more akin to a road bike. The offset is also, it's actually staying in the same range. It goes from the fork offset is going from 47 in road mode to 48 in off-road mode, pretty neutral offset figures. And that's giving you more weight over the front axle in road mode. So that again, planting more mass on that front contact patch. So you have that control in the high speed corners, both a sweepers and a crit or descending down a canyon road. And it's also putting the bars a little bit lower for the road experience. Just in this case, only about 10 millimeters. But that also is a road bike generally wants to be a little bit longer and lower. And that's what's being created by using this flip chip. It's really, it's interesting to me because I think this is getting there in terms of what we've talked about before with the flip chip to really change the personality of the bike. And as mm -hmm. we know, the, the gravel bike is largely the kissing cousin of the road bike anyway. So the, these subtle changes, as you said, that 10 millimeter difference really does make it feel more like a road bike. And then when you flip it around, this thing feels more like an off-road bike. Yeah. The other, and the other thing that's happening here too, is that the, they have a horizontal, mostly horizontal flip chip in the rear. 
that is reducing the the chains effective chain stay length from 425 in gravel mode to 415 in road mode now this matters but it matters a lot less actually than what's happening up front and so i'm of the mind that a a more like it, it adds a little bit of weight and complexity uh, because you have to move the derailleur as well when you flip when you have the slip chip for the axle so it's definitely adding some weight and complexity in the rear and the change in the handling characteristics of the bike are much less and so i could i personally would go with a single position in the rear that's more neutral like for 420 but this is perfectly good as well but it's really up front where you're getting uh, a material difference in how the bike handles now there's another bike that we wanted to compare and compa contrast with this one yeah, that was the this German brand, right? The egg bar. Yep. Yeah. And so this company is doing something very similar. They have the flip chips front and rear. They do something that I actually, so cat bag out. This is something I'm going to be doing in uh, a project that I'm working on right now for, for kind of the next evolution of our, of our thesis to come out next year, where the flip chip is such that when you flip the chip in the front, the you can use two different rotor sizes and not have to remove the brake caliper and insert or flip some sort of brake caliper mount in order to accommodate it so essentially the flip chip is allowing the axle to move mostly up and slightly back for a total of 10 millimeters and so you can use a, a 10 millimeter uh, smaller radius rotor in one position versus the other and then the caliper you may have to say loosen the caliper and just tweak it to get the alignment, but you don't have to pull it off and flip a thing and so on. So it's actually realistic to swap between wheel sets and positions when you swap between your road and your gravel mode. And I really think that's a, something that the eight bar did that the allied, I don't believe, I think the allied, you do have to flip that caliper positioning chip. Okay. To make a little bit of adjustment there. Yeah. So anybody who's running two wheel sets, like, like we are both big advocates are, you definitely have some a little bit more fiddling around under that scenario, whereas the eight bar implementation, you're just using a, a 180 rotor on the off-road setup and a 160 on the road setup. In an ideal world, you would be. They are saying that it's 140 road and 160 gravel. Gotcha. And the reason for that, to my knowledge, I know that last I spoke with SRAM, they were only allowing up to 160 for use with their caliber. Shimano, I'm not sure. I'd have to double check. But there is actually a, an attempt at a movement from Tektro and Promax and Magora called Flat Mount 180 to basically expand the Flat Mount standard to accept 180 rotors. And there's a few things that go into this. Um, my suspicion is that a big part of it is not wanting um, people to put 180 rotors on forks and frames that haven't been tested for the amount of braking force and torque loads that that bigger rotor can apply. It may also be though that maybe the caliper overheats and you get boiling of the fluid when you have so much braking power on hand. So that would be an interesting thing to tease with, with somebody from SRAM or Shimano, but I would love to see one of those two companies or both essentially approve their calipers for uh, 180 flat mount rotors in situations where the fork and the frame are designed to accommodate it. So it's, a, it's another set of testing that would have to be done on frames and forks. So you can't just you know swap it over and assume you're gonna be safe. That makes sense. Yeah, and it also makes sense why sometimes you see these things and these trends starting, but they, it takes a couple of years for them to fully roll out. The flip chip being one of them, I think you started to see a couple of bikes with them even going back a few years ago, but the, mm -hmm. the trend is 
yet to fully take hold, but I think the Echo and the 8-bar, like it's, it's heading in that direction. I think we're going to see a lot of flip chip bikes. And- it gets back to something that I've you know been talking about for a while. It's like in, in an ideal world, I'd rather see people as few bikes as possible that are as versatile as possible. And so having a flip chip, particularly one that doesn't require the caliper to be fussed with all that much, makes it so you can really have one great machine, invest a little bit more in that in a couple of wheel sets and then go out and have all these different experiences. So I, I think it's definitely a trend in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah. Super cool. Super cool. Speaking of interesting trends, 3T dropped something recently that was a bit of a surprise. Yeah. They're bringing production to Italy for complete frames, which is something that I know that they've been, they're also, they also own THM. 3T. Carbon. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Three THM is part of that, part of that group. I think it's the same ownership structure. I'm not sure if it's a holding company or what have you. Gerard Vrooman from Cervelo, I believe, is a partner in that business. He's certainly doing a lot of their frame design, if not all. And then Rene Wertz, who's been with 3T for a long time, has a pretty storied history on the in the industry, is the CEO of that organization. And they they are doing so they're not providing a lot of detail here, but they are talking about weaving frames. So automating that process, which up until now has been highly uh, manually labor intensive, just laying out the different plies. That is actually very exciting. Yeah, I think that was a little bit of the gist of the article that I read. They realized that bringing the manufacturing to Italy and given the cost of labor in Italy versus in Asia, for example, they were going to have to rethink things. They couldn't have mm-hmm. 10 staff members on the line doing certain things that might be happening in Asian production. So they were rethinking it and developing this weaving tech around their needs to you know, have more automation and maybe more computerized control over the, the processes. And once you have dialed an automated process, the variability in that process tends to be much. If you have somebody who's doing the layup schedule, they have an off day or they mess something up, you actually have to build that into the, the frame design to some degree to make sure that there's some additional buffer so that the frame won't the frame has some extra strength built in essentially to account for even like little what seem like little trivial variations in in how the plies are laid down maybe it results occasionally in a void right and all frames have voids anyone who does the otherwise is, is not telling the truth it's just a matter of whether those voids are whether there's enough extra whether the frames are sufficiently over and tested and everything else such that those voids don't become a problem over the life of the bike and so this is could be a way to reduce that variability as well as reducing the labor costs associated with frame production in the long term yeah no i think undoubtedly like having it under one roof is going to allow them to flex a lot of creativity and explore things that weren't otherwise possible i think that's the beauty obviously there's a lot of great partnerships out there in the manufacturing world but having more and more control over the processes is going to clearly allow you more freedom to explore different concepts yeah yeah and i would add to that in we 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 haven't had this conversation so much here yet. The, the conversation we've re- referenced that I had with Russ over at Pathless Pedaled, we do- dove into this more. What does an onshoring um, process look like for, let's say, you wanted to produce in the United States? What they're doing here in Italy is they're essentially starting on the really high end. So they're going to have this founder's edition frame that's using this new process that they have. 
that will help to fund the next stage where they can look to take the lessons they learned from that, both in terms of design elements, maybe design for manufacture, maybe it's how their machines that they've just set up for this process, how they can scale that. And then you'll start to see this trickle down. And ultimately, you get to a stage where the doing it in-house in Italy could be competitive or even advantageous at lower price points relative to the current methods being used in Asia. Now, of course, Asia's producers are also looking at this technology too. So don't expect it's bad to stand still. Yeah, no, I think it's, there's a lot deeper conversation there. And I th- we'll attempt to get someone from 3T on the line at some point to just dig into mm-hmm. it maybe a few months after they've started get, getting that founder series out the door. But it's exciting for sure. And one last note I want to have on the, the this weaving process is that it used to be on the rim side is where you saw this first. And it used to be that a woven, a mandrel spun rim needed to be heavier to get less strength because you didn't have, you had a very limited optionality in terms of how you could orient um, the threads that are being woven. But I was actually just speaking with our rim vendor the other day, and it is, the technology is such that we are now on the cusp of seeing rims that are built through an, through an autom- largely auto woven process that are stronger and lighter with less variation. And if that comes to fruition, that's going to result in potentially 30 to 50 grams per rim reduction while at the same time reducing production costs and variabilities. That's a not a step change, but a significant improvement for uh, carbon technology that we're now seeing in, in frames, which are much more complex. Yeah, super exciting. Cool. Yeah. I think we should close right. out with just a little bit of discussion about what's going on in the ridership. That's enough nerdery for you? Yeah, I think so. I'm like, my mind's blown. (laughs) All right, let's go into it. You want to go first? Yeah. So one of the things I know that in our last episode, you mentioned you've been on the East Coast and working on a cool new gravel event that's associated with a festival. Yeah. So I've been advising on some, what I describe as like community and economic Uh, development projects in the Hudson Valley area. I was brought in, introduced to that by one of our riders and community members, this guy, Joe Conkra, with the O Positive Festival. And as part of this O Positive Festival, we are looking to put on a gravel event. And so this would be October 8th through the 10th. And we're looking currently for somebody who can help us manage the event. So promotion, we're not really worried about between the pod and the ridership and other channels, getting the turnout and we'll have some budget. So we're looking for somebody in the area who can own that part of it, helping with the management. But otherwise, it'll be part of this broader festival, which is really neat. It brings in uh, artists who provide, who are painting murals and providing free performances to the community, doctors, nurses, and dentists who are providing uh, free medical care through a mutual aid program to the artist community that's often underserved. And then the broader community itself comes in and pays a recommended donation to be part of this several days of festivities. So I it was canceled last year because of COVID. I'm really excited to be a part of it this year. We're actually looking to you know sponsor it uh, in some interesting ways in addition to just helping to Uh, put on this new event to bring people together. Awesome. I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the coming months because that's not until October. But if you're on the East Coast or have the ability to travel to the East Coast, definitely like a fun, it sounds like a fun gravel event associated with just an interesting weekend of camping and art and all kinds of cool stuff. Yeah. And if you'd like to be involved, um, you can ping us through the ping me through the ridership, or even just go into the uh, region Hudson Valley, New York channel. Um, we'll have some discussion about it there. Nice. 
The other thing I keyed in on this week is my colleague at Bike Index, Seth Herr, did the cross Washington bike packing race. It's something crazy like a 685 mile race from the ocean up in Washington all the way across the state. And he took the time to do a really great and thorough write up. It was he's an experienced guy, a very talented guy, and he's always riding big events. But this was his first bike packing event. And uh, so there's a write up in in our discipline bike packing channel that I think everybody should look to. Yeah, and we'll put that in the in the notes for the episode as well, yeah. Yeah. And one one additional teaser about my colleagues at Bike Index wow. who apparently are immensely talented. My colleague Lily Williams has been a s- selected for the Olympic track cycling team, which is awesome. Oh, no kidding. I'm so proud of her. She races for Rally on the Road, but came from a cross and dirt background, just got plucked out of the ether a few years ago for her road talents. And someone in USA Cycling said, we want to test you on the track. And she showed some incredible talent in their testing process. And they invested in her over the last couple of years. She rode with Chloe Digart on the Berlin four-woman pursuit team that won the gold medal in Berlin last year and just officially got selected. So I've got an interview coming with her before the Olympics. But I just wanted to tease that out because I'm super stoked I'm happy that Bike Index has been supporting her. She's a great uh, advocate for what we do at Bike Index, and we couldn't be happier for her. You know, it makes me, it brings to mind like a great way to close this episode would be just a mix. I have been overwhelmed by, not overwhelmed, but deeply appreciative of just the the types of people and the the ethos and the just the community that has that we've been able to build around us and be a part of through our own work and in our little part of this. And so just a lot of, I just want to express some gratitude to listeners who've reached out uh, to people who are making the ridership their own and really taking it and running with it. And it's super gratifying to see. And it's great to be a part of. Yeah, no doubt. And we read everything that comes through and it, it puts a smile to my face. Sometimes when I'm down, I just pop into the ridership and see some of the conversations going on and just get stoked. We don't always have time to do the riding that we want to do, but I love being inspired and it gets, it makes me make time in my schedule to get out there. Yeah. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks to everyone listening for being a part of this. Yeah. And Randall, thanks for the time that this week, that's going to do it for us at in the dirt from the gravel ride podcast. Until next time, here's to finding some dirt under your wheels. Thank you.